Get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the road. Uh, all right, well, you know, let's get this thing started. Sure. Uh, welcome to Over There, the podcast about military history and activism in the age of Trump. My name is Terry Brennan. I'm an artistic director and activist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my name is Matt Martin. I'm a retired Air Force officer, drone pilot, and defense thinker. Uh, how many episodes do you think we have to do before we don't have to introduce ourselves anymore? Oh, I mean, I, I, listen, I've been not introducing myself at parties for years. So, <laughs> the, you know, we could just we could just move. Maybe maybe this is the last one. Uh, although, you know, a lot of the podcasts I listen to, they spend a lot of time making sure that, like, if you're new to the podcast, you know exactly who you're listening to. <laughs> if so you're new to the podcast, you just go back and listen to, like... You're probably not listening to the podcast, right? If you don't know what you're listening to. That's the thing about podcasts. You know, I have a friend who's a completist. Like, he can only listen to podcasts if he starts from the beginning (laughs) Uh and works. And uh, I am, like, the opposite. I legitimately just, like, pick, like, episode 320 and start going. Uh, It's mainly because I'm uh, lazy. Uh, right, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to do the work. Who's got time, especially if there are hundreds of episodes? Come on. <laughs> I'm like, listen, I only walk my dog once a day. So, uh, oh, poor well, doggy. Poor, well, I mean, he actually, well, he gets two walks, just to be fair. Like, they're oh, like, okay. I thought this was about Just defense. not you. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I just walk him for, for an hour in the morning, and Colleen walks him for mm. an hour at night. He's a pretty hyperactive dog, so he needs to walk a lot. Uh, but anyway, let's. you know what? People are like, I don't care about your dog, no, Terry. I really no, want to know about the activism in the age of Trump. That's right. So actually, Matt, I want to kick this off. Um, I have a couple of things I have to ask you because I've had kind of – you were – uh, at a NATO conference last week, but yeah. I was at the gym in Philadelphia, uh-huh. and uh, I found that one of the things that I do as um, as a matter of activism. So I go to I go to a gym in South Philly, and uh, at this gym there are a, a plethora of gentlemen who. I think would say don't agree with me politically, which is fine. I don't go to the gym to have political conversations. I go sure. to the gym to go to the gym. Yeah. However, one of the things that I've done since the election of Donald Trump is I have made a point to get a handful of politically minded T-shirts and I wear them places. Hmm. And the reason that I decided to do this, somebody was asking me about this. They said, well, isn't that just demonstrating your uh, like you're not acting. You're just demonstrating. You're like, look at me. I'm on the good team. Yeah, uh, good team in quotes because I'm sure someone else would call you're it the bad team. Signaling to your tribe, exactly. They're like, aren't you just signaling? And so, and I, I can actually appreciate that, and I understand why they brought that up. And I said, well, actually, I wear most of them places where there ain't a lot mm. of my tribe, mm-hmm. and I do it because it is a little bit of signaling in the sense that I want other people who feel the same way not to feel like they're kind of all alone in this very. I don't want to say toxic environment, but it's a pretty like machismo environment. And Mm -hmm. it's a pretty, um, there's a lot of dudes who wear, uh, no one wears like Trump shirts per se, but they definitely wear what I would call Trump adjacent shirts. They wear (laughs) shirts with flags that say stuff like, yeah, they wear stuff that'll say like freedom isn't free or Uh, things that sort of imply like if, if you don't agree with, force all the time you suck yeah and so i decided one of the things that's frustrated me about sort of the rise of the alt-right the rise of the hard right and sort of like this whole you know step into trumpism as we know it is that for a long time 
we've been told that if so, if you got a crazy uncle who says crazy things, you just just ignore your crazy uncle. Yeah. Don't don't get into it with him. It's not worth your time. And we're discovering that that because we ignored uh, Uncle Don, uh-huh. that that now there's a lot of people who think like Uncle Don because no one was disputing uh, crazy Uncle Don. Mm-hmm. You know, it just occurred to me. I'm thinking about my own uncle, but I, I you, didn't occur to me that this is Donald Trump's name too. You think Uncle Don is a symptom or a cause? Well, the, the, I think uh, I think Uncle Don is a, a symptom of something larger, but then. Yeah. I know a lot of people who he becomes sort of like, I wouldn't say he's a cause, but I would say that like his less crazy ideas, I mean, they're still crazy, but the ones that aren't crazy extreme, people start to adjust and go, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, it, I, I can kind of see that. Yeah. Like I've, I've heard that in my own family. Yeah. So I wear these t-shirts that just sort of push back on that. I want to make the space, uh, the gym I go to a space where... Um, I don't know if, if for nothing for maybe maybe the best way of putting it is all ideas are represented there. Like you've got all your guys who are wearing their Trump adjacent shirts, and then you've got me who comes in with his Black Lives Matter shirt or his uh, his uh, feminist T shirt or whatever it's going to be, just mm-hmm. to say like, hey, there's there's other points of view. You know that that's really the only reason I do it, and to sort of say like, you don't own this space slash you don't own things that are considered traditionally male. You know, you go yeah. in. There's all these guys lifting really heavy weights. I'm like, that's cool, man. But you don't own patriotism. You don't own, uh, yeah, that's right. You know, gym culture. Yeah. You have to share it. <laughs> gym well, Matt, culture. this brings me to a problem that then came up, uh-huh. which is there was a gentleman, and I'm not going to get into it in too much detail, uh-huh. who very obviously did not like some of the shirts I was wearing, uh-huh. and and needed to uh, demonstrate a number of like sort of like physical activities that he was he was trying to intimidate me in the gym he'd come over and stare at me while doing uh exercises really close to me so he'd be doing like a back exercise but but suddenly out of nowhere he needed to do some calf raises and he needed to do them right next to me (laughs) while giving me the eye Uh uh-huh and uh then and then one day as i was uh as i was walking out to my car uh this this gentleman Uh uh followed me out he followed me oh out. He was, he was tailing me in his pickup truck. Yeah. Uh, he was driving up real close behind me. I decided I'm just going to walk to my car, get in my car. Huh. And uh, then I decided he didn't need to know what car I drove. That, I just walked past my car. That's pretty aggressive behavior. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty aggressive. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a South Philly gym. <laughs> and, uh, okay. It's, you know, it's, you know, like Rocky, is, uh, Rocky is, a, is a national treasure at this gym. And... Uh, if that gives you an idea it, of like the gentleman you're dealing it, with, is that is that a is that a pseudonym or? <laughs> no, man, Rocky. I, I, if you're not from Philadelphia, you don't spend time in Philadelphia. Rocky's a really big deal. Like Rocky is not a movie that happened in the '70s. Rocky is an institution that still exists in Philadelphia, wow. and he's kind of like a uh, he's a um, a symbol of all that is masculine. <laughs> that's and that's not that's not even me being silly. Like that is just how it is in certain parts of the city. Huh. And. Uh, and that's that's that is how uh, certain parts of South Philly are. Yeah. So I walked past my car and I decided, man, oh man, he doesn't need to know what car I drive. And he drove real slow out of that parking lot. Like he wanted to see what car I was driving in. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't get to see that that day. But that got me thinking, Matt. I got me thinking that you know activism has its consequences. Sure. You have to be very careful. Yeah. So Matt, I need to run some things by you. <laughs> okay. 
because I want to be safe at the gym. So because this guy followed me to my car, I was like, I thought to myself, now this guy is about as big as John Cena. Yeah. This man probably weighs 275 pounds and is legitimately a wall of muscle. He outweighs me by easily 100 pounds. And he had a Marine Corps tattoo on his calf and on his pickup truck. So I assume he served in the Marine Corps and knows a little more about fighting than I do. (laughs) Uh So I said to myself, self, I think I'm going to go and uh, take some self-defense classes. You know, I'm not going to go out and fight anybody off, but I should probably know what to do if someone attacks me. Sure. But I'm not sure if that's that's a prudent thing to do, if that's a paranoid thing to do. I see. I see. We're, we're, we're kicking this thing off a little prudent or paranoid, aren't we? No, yeah, Matt, I need your advice on this. So, yeah, we're going to kick this off with some prudent or paranoid. All right. It's, it's, it's been a while, but let me see here. Okay. Let me, I'm just going to shoot straight from the, from the hip and say that that's a, a prudent measure for a number of reasons. Not because you're going to be necessarily beset upon by thugs and hooligans at some point, and you're going to need to, to, uh, to defend yourself. Right. Although I, I suppose that's certainly possible. Uh, now, my guess is with this particular individual that if he um, uh, if he was bent on an altercation, uh, that it probably would have not uh, immediately started out violently. That um, you know he just wanted to demonstrate what a tough guy he is and and um, you know get in your face a little bit. And uh, those kind of situations tend to be uh, you know diffusable. Uh, if you, you know, if you just are calm and, and, and reasonable and you can sort of de-escalate the situation. This is, this is by the way, what they, tr- what they teach us to do at, uh, at prisoner. <laughs> by the way, this is what they teach us to do at prisoner of war training. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> so, so, you know, in my, in my career, I've, uh, I've been overseas a lot. And uh, every couple of years, they make you go to various uh, uh, trainings. When I was a, a, a young officer, I had to go to prisoner of war training. And then I... Uh, after 9-11, they, they changed the format of that from a more of a traditional prisoner of war setting to, uh, you know, what happens if you get captured by the Taliban, right, or ISIS or some of these terrorist groups. The key difference being that if you're a prisoner of war by a, being held by a country that has a government, they're probably not going to kill you, whereas ISIS will, right? Uh, and the key in that situation is to uh, be very, very compliant and to de-escalate the situation by by being compliant, uh, because especially the initial phases of capture or some kind of altercation, uh, there's going to be it's going to be very emotional. There's going to you know there's going to be a uh, a lot of uh, a lot of energy, and uh, very easy for that to uh, to boil over into uh, into violence, which is going to be bad for you, right? So you want to uh, be calm and compliant and de-escalate the situation and get a little bit of space between you and whoever the threat is. Uh, and then over time, if you're in a captive situation, you can try to build a rapport with your captor so that it's harder for them to execute you. <laughs> this is this is a component of the training, right? This a, that's a long way of saying if you are confronted by somebody, uh, you, you don't want to uh, escalate the situation. You want to de-escalate the situation. But I still think self-defense training is is prudent because it um, gives you a sense of your own limitations, makes you feel a little bit more confident, uh, and uh, is is good for your character. And of course, we we do this training in the military. 
Um, but um, I, I don't. I wouldn't rely on that to uh, keep me safe. Uh, the thing that's going to keep me safe is de-escalation. And also, they teach us to run away. That's another thing they teach us to do in the military. <laughs> you know, Matt, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm actually uh, one of the things. Uh, so being. Being someone in the arts, I have a couple of jobs, right? I'm an artistic director for a theater company, but I also teach parkour at the uh-huh. Philadelphia School of Circus Arts. And when this happened, I told myself, not only was I <clears throat> kind of brushing up on my self-defense, uh, I also was like, well, you know, I already teach people how to like run really fast and climb up and jump over things in, yeah. in an attempt to evade. So I also started sort of retraining some of my more basic parkour skills in an attempt to possibly escape this gentleman or someone like him if my words fail me and i'm just is that prudent or is that paranoid that that, that's highly prudent that is really the best thing you can do (laughs) yeah Uh, also he's real big so i think i can probably run faster than him yeah in 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 other countries you know you have this 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 notion of a duty to retreat that if you're being threatened or uh, you're in some type of altercation that you don't stand your ground because standing your ground is a good way to get killed or injured. Uh, and that if you just try to get out of that situation, you're probably going to be safe. And who cares about your ego? So, yeah. yeah well, my well, ego it, cares. But you know what? I tried not <laughs> to listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so prudent. But, um, you know, d- don't be afraid to run away. That's my that's my judgment on that. Well, Matt, there's a reason I'm still alive. And it's because I'm not afraid to run away. <laughs> yeah. Now. Uh, after that, I started kind of like I had to sort of like track through like, OK, if, if this happens, if this guy decides to follow me again or if this guy wants to start something, you know, I, I've, I've got the self-defense classes under my belt. I've got the, the yeah. parkour training like very, very under my belt. So I was like, but what if, you know, what if he is really fast? What if he's one of those big guys who also sprints really well? Like, what if he gets his hands yeah. on me? So I also decided, well, the thing is, is. This man outweighs me by 100 pounds, so no matter what self-defense training I take, I'm probably at a severe disadvantage. So I also went onto Amazon, and I Uh bought myself a little canister of pepper spray, which felt a little weird, but, like, at the same time, I was like, I just want to make sure that, like, I don't want anything bad to happen to me, but I also don't want anything bad to happen to him. So I decided to get myself some some sort of non-lethal protection. Is that prudent or paranoid? Okay, so now we're getting into into more of a of a gray area. Uh, there's there's sort of a spectrum of um, of the effect of the efficacy of of various self defense measures. Uh, self defense training is is good because especially if you practice it a little bit, uh, you know you have ready access to your your hands, right, uh, and you can employ those quickly. Uh, and you know, if you it's self defense training, they'll teach you where you know where to hit a person, a few couple of key locations to not completely disable them, but just to back them off a couple of feet so that you can get out of that situation and then run away. Right? Uh, when you start relying on some type of weapon, it when you start relying on some type of weapon, it becomes a lot trickier because now you have to be able to access that weapon quickly, employ it effectively. And then buy, use that to buy the space to to run away. And then if you take that to all the way to the end of the spectrum, start talking about firearms. You know, the problem with firearms is that, um, you know, you don't employ them in order to buy the space uh, for you to run away. You employ them to to disable your attacker. And uh, it, any use of firearms tends to be in a very chaotic situation. And, 
you know, if you're not super effective the first time, uh, it's not going to work. And there's a good chance you could kill the wrong person, et cetera. So all kinds of problems. Right. Uh, so I'm not sure that pepper spray is 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 going to be very useful. You'd have to practice with it uh, and be very proficient at, at using it and sort of, you know, uh, the nice thing about something like pepper spray is it's an, it's non-lethal, right? So if you accidentally pepper spray the wrong person or yourself, right? <laughs> which uh, you know, which which is always a thing, right? When you're using weapons, there's there's a good, good chance you could you could hit the wrong person, including yourself. And but at least you know you're not going to have all that severe consequences other than uh, being very very unhappy for a few minutes. But I don't know. I I, I I think that's getting a little bit more to the to the paranoid. Phase. Okay. Okay. Not not where I thought you were going to go with that, but I understand. Okay. Right. This is why I run this by other people. Sure. Uh, yeah. Now you said that like being able to access it quickly is a big deal, and you have to make sure that you're you know properly trained. You know how to deploy something like this. Right. Well, I tracked through that. I was like, I, I'm a notorious for dropping things. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, have you seen the movie Taxi Driver? Sure. Of course. Okay. It's Classic. And you know that little, like, thing that he makes where the gun pops out of his sleeve? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm starting to make one of those for my pepper spray. Oh, no. Uh, and so that way, now the problem is sometimes when I'm doing curls, it just it just goes off. So, And I always have to wear long sleeves, baggy long sleeves at the gym, which is weird looking. Uh, but I got to say, it does give me immediate access to the pepper spray I bought. So my question is, um, spring-loaded arm contraption... <laughs> Proven to paranoid, <laughs> right? So th- this is this is uh, this, this one's easy, right? It's, it's paranoid. Oh, it's don't not do where it. I thought you were going with that. Okay, don't do it. <laughs> uh, you're you're th- those you know j- just like uh, you know uh, f- just like f- firearms or just being you know sort of spring loaded to a uh, to uh, uh, ready to respond situation. Um, you're going to have uh, as many false positives as as actual positives, and uh, you're uh, almost certainly going to injure yourself with such a contraption. <laughs> and it's not going to make you any safer. Uh, so, so that's that's definitely paranoid. Oh well, that took the wind out of my sails a little bit. But um, in the in the interest, I only have one more thing because I, I've been oh, yeah. I've been like I said I've been tracking through this whole situation, and I'm equally dedicated to running as I am to fighting. I'm just basically, I'm like self-preservation is a very important thing. So I have no pride. I'm not someone who's like, Oh, I need to like vanquish the enemy. I just know that I need to like either, you know, fight or flight. Those are my two options. I would prefer to flee first, but if I get cornered, obviously I have to do something to get myself out. And in the fleeing category, I realize that while I'm, I'm really good at parkour, I'm, I'm fast on my feet. I'm light, even for somebody my age, but that doesn't mean that I can make it over every obstacle or over every wall. So I, um, have you seen those wheelie shoes, those like those oh, the sure. kids have? So uh-huh. uh, I, I was developing something uh, similar, uh, jet shoes. Um, <laughs> so with my, with my deployable really? pepper spray thing, I've actually been working on some shoes that have like a little bit of a, like a jet pack thrust. Uh, prune and paranoid. Now you're just being ridiculous. Oh, okay. So you don't think you don't think that uh, you don't think the jetpack shoes are going to get me out of this situation? Plus, I could always just point the heel at him and burn him. I, I suppose you could, uh, but uh, uh, that sounds like something that's going to need a lot of 
development and testing before you have a feasible working model. And then there's probably a permit that you're going to need or something. I hadn't even thought of that permit part. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, maybe I'll just throw it all. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just go back to parkour and, uh, and, and take in kung fu classes on Saturdays, and we'll see what that, what that gets me. There you, there you go. All right, so uh, really quick, let's talk. Uh, there's a lot happened this week. Uh, sure, we are, yeah. Uh, well, a lot happens every week, really, anymore. But uh, you were talking to me the other day about... Uh, so one of the generals said... Uh, Publicly, they, I don't know what was it the Washington Post or was it on TV that he said. Uh, all I know is I heard it through a number of podcasts. That General is it Hayden Hayden Gen- General Hayden. It was actually at a, a sort of a you know a, a security forum conference type event. Uh, General Hayden is the uh, is the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, so uh, which is is one of these uh, what we call a unified combatant command. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. military is divided up into a number of geographic regions. And so for each one of those regions, you have a combatant command. But then you also uh, have um, what we call unified commands, which are commands that are more functional in nature. Uh, and that can go across geographic boundaries. So we have a transportation command. We have a space command. And we also have strategic command, which uh, controls uh, the nuclear arsenal and is tasked with the uh, with the purpose of of employing nuclear weapons, fighting a nuclear war if, if we have to. And so, G- General Hayden, uh, Air Force General, uh, if if Trump decided to launch a nuclear war, General Hayden would be the one who would get the order, right? And he would then issue um, follow-on orders to all the nuclear forces to uh, to engage in various uh, d- uh, nuclear war plans. And in this security conference, he was asked, you know, if, if Trump just ordered a nuclear strike against country X, would he do it? And his very thoughtful response was, well, he would follow the lawful orders of the president, uh, but that it was very hard to imagine how any sort of bolt from the blue order to just launch the nukes would be a lawful order, right? Because uh, we have these principles of proportionality, of discrimination, uh, and, uh, you know, generally speaking, nuclear weapons don't fit into those categories as a first strike, that they, you, you would only have a legitimate reason to use them in retaliation uh, for the use of nuclear weapons, or in very rare cases where the use of a nuclear weapon is the only way to prevent the use of another nuclear weapon, you know, a deeply buried uh, bunker where that has nuclear missiles that are about to launch or, or something like that. Uh, and in absence of World War III breaking out, uh, that General Hayden would, would have a hard time for seeing how such an order would be lawful. Now, and so he wouldn't do it. One of the things that I heard, so I was listening to, I believe it was... It was face the nation or meet the press. I was I, I uh-huh. um, I'm not home on Sunday. I work on Sundays, but I, I get the audio podcast and I just listen to um, what everyone has to say. And one of the things that I found a little bit frustrating about this development is that a lot of uh, it feels like a lot of people who are reporting on it brought it down to like. You just explained it in a very succinct way. The fact that that basically <laughs> uh-huh. there's protocols and there are there are things that. There are steps that are to be followed in these events, and that what General yeah. Hayden said was that if it is illegal, if it's just something that is 
the whim of the president or, or, or an angry outburst or who knows what, that, that obviously it probably isn't lawful and he wouldn't follow them. It turned into uh, when they asked different people on these panels, a lot of more conservative responders were like, well, listen, it's the president's sole discretion because he's the commander in chief and he only has, you know, minutes to make these decisions, not hours, not days, minutes. And they yeah. were they were kind of implying, you know, the preemptive, like a not a preemptive that um, that we were attacked first. They were implying that like, how dare this person say <laughs> that yeah. they wouldn't do this because you know yeah. the president has uh, the authority to do it for a good reason. And they would go into like, listen, if it was something where the president wanted to strike first, then obviously we have time. And they covered their bases, like as, as many politicians on both sides of the aisle do. They were very good about covering all their bases, but they were presenting this narrative like, listen, we need to listen to the president, and we need to realize yeah. that this is – like they seemed very upset that he said this. They, they still gave sure. him his due, but I felt it was turned into less about what was said and more about – it was a little bit authoritarian, like not authoritarian and like – someone's about to take over this country and we're all going to live in North Korea authoritarian. But like the idea of like, I grew up in a relatively authoritarian environment. I went to Catholic school and the, the narrative <laughs> uh -huh. in Catholic school is like, you oh just boy. do what you're told. And yeah. you're like, well, what if it's uh, what if someone asked me to do something unethical? There's still an eye roll. There's still like a, Ugh, look, no one's going to do that is the, this is what I kind of got from some conservative politicians that, uh, why are we having this conversation? Which I found very frustrating because I think it's a pretty important conversation to be having. Yeah, the, the implication is that, well, you know, who is this four-star general to know what's going on? Only one person can really know and, and be able to make the right decision in a short amount of time. And that person is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Oh, that hurts to laugh at that, but uh. yeah, it's that's uh, wow. I mean, uh, I, I guess you know what I, I just thought of it in those terms, and it, it's it's absurd on its face, right? When you when you put it in those terms, uh, the, the the I mean, the, the thing is, there's there there's there is something to this idea that that um, you know, in a nuclear confrontation. That you wouldn't, you don't have a lot of time to make decisions, and that that goes all the way back to the 1960s. Uh, in the 1950s, at, you know, after World War II, uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, we started building nuclear weapons, a lot of the, a lot of nuclear bombs. Uh, we didn't have very precise means of delivery, and the purpose of building those those nuclear weapons was to potentially stop a Russian invasion of Western Europe. Right? What, you know, uh, Russia was being very pro provocative in the in the 50s. Uh, Eisenhower was worried that they would, uh, you know, try to capture Western Europe, and he didn't have a huge army in in Europe, and so the only thing we had to potentially to stop them was uh, was nuclear weapons, right? Uh, but um, Eisenhower realized kind of early on that hey, if if the Russians roll tanks into West Germany, we are not going to blow up the world, right? Uh, that that's not sufficient provocation for uh, for launching World War III and killing millions of people. And therefore, our deterrent was not credible because the Russians knew we weren't going to do that. And therefore, they, they weren't going to be uh, deterred from, from invading Western Europe. And so in the 60s, we started this, uh, this doctrine known as flexible response, 
whereby we built a whole range of different categories and delivery systems of nuclear weapons so that we could respond small with nuclear weapons if we, you know, for something like a Russian invasion, all the way up through World War III if the Russians decided to launch World War III. And it was that kind of thinking and that approach that eventually led to us having 30,000 nuclear weapons on high alert pointed at the at the Russians and the Russians having 30,000 nuclear weapons pointed at us on hair trigger alert. And we had this, uh, this doctrine known as uh, launch on warning. So if the Russians were to launch a whole bunch of nuclear weapons at us, we couldn't wait until they, they hit us, until those thousands of weapons impacted U.S. soil, because then they would blow up our, our nuclear weapons and we would be unable to retaliate. And if the Russians knew that we couldn't retaliate, then they would have a greater incentive to launch the war. And so we put all these satellites and radars all over the world to give us indications of a Russian attack and give us the time to to respond before those nuclear weapons impacted U.S. soil. And that's why we have the football and this vast network of command and control nodes so that uh, if we detected the Russian attack, we could very quickly tell the president what was going on. We could open the football and the football contains just a list of options, war plans and some codes. And we then the president could decide what he wanted to do in the space of a couple minutes and then trans and then tell his military staff what to do, who would then transmit orders to the rest of the nuclear arsenal. And we could get the missiles out of the silos before the Russian missiles impacted our silos. And therefore, our retaliatory capability was assured. And therefore, the Russians would be deterred from launching the attack. Right. Yeah. But that's that's not the world we're living in anymore. Uh, the Russians don't have 30,000 nuclear weapons pointed at us. They have 1,500, which is not nothing, but uh, it's, it's not enough to try to fight and win a nuclear war and disable the American uh, retaliatory capability. And, of course, we still have an early warning system in place. So if the if the and here's the thing, the, the president of the United States is not sitting at a giant radar terminal monitoring nuclear, you know, Russian nuclear forces. The person who is sitting at a giant radar terminal is General Hayden, right? The, the, the very officer who made these comments. So if the Russians were going to attack and the president only had a number of minutes to make a decision, the person who would know that first is, is General Hayden, right? He would be the one telling the president, hey, the, the, the attack is inbound. We have 20 minutes before the first weapons impact our soil. And here's the response that we are recommending, right? Uh, so... The, the actually the best per, the person with the best situational awareness is not is not going to be the president of the United States. It's going to be the commander of Stratcom until the president of the United States is, has the opportunity to sort of get up to speed and and make the decision. And so, the, you know, that response just do what Donald Trump says. Uh, obviously, fails to capture the complexity of all of that stuff. And so, you should re, you should you know uh, you should resist the urge to think the president of the United States is the only authority. Yeah, it was very it was a very frustrating thing to listen to and there were there were good points made from time to time and they definitely conceded here and there but it was very frustrating because there was a as you put it there was a an air of who is this general to <laughs> to question what right. his commander in chief tells right. him to do and yeah. I would hope that like in in the event that something is 
outside of protocol. When someone's like, we're going to do this, I would really hope there are cooler heads who are like, we're not going to do that. As opposed to, um, well, I guess I just have to do what I'm told and we'll kind of try to clean the mess up later and talk about whether whether that worked or not. Yeah, you know, it's 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 this thing that we put in place to to be able to rapidly respond so that our deterrent was credible. You know, the, the president of the United States has to have the ability to make a to make a decision within minutes and then issue an order. Uh, otherwise, the deterrent doesn't work. And that's how World War Three breaks out when the when the deterrent doesn't work. But uh, yeah, there, there, there has to be, you know, the football does not contain a radio, right? There's no button that the president can push that's just going to launch nuclear weapons. The president has to tell people to do that. And then those people have to tell people who are sitting at radios to then transmit orders. And those orders have to be in the correct format with the correct codes and they have to go to the correct places. Uh, and then people at the other end have to decode and authenticate and verify those orders and then go through all the steps and processes that it takes to actually launch the nuclear weapons. And that process may only take minutes, but it's it's still a process. And and the reason why we put four-star generals uh, in in that loop is so that and, and by the way, it takes, you know, 30 years to make a four-star general and they go to all these fancy schools and they spend their careers collecting all this experience so that by the time they are sitting in that chair ready to receive and then transmit the president's intent uh, as orders to the nuclear forces, they have the ability to apply some judgment, <laughs> right? That's why you have generals, so that they could exercise their judgment. And if the president were to just say, hey, I'm feeling, you know, a little twitchy today, let's launch some nukes, there would be a, there would be a discussion. And if for some reason the president was insistent upon uh, issuing unlawful orders, then we would have a constitutional crisis for sure. But it would probably not lead to the breakout of World War Three. Well, that's that is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> reassuring. It is reassuring yeah, a little bit because I feel like uh, for this is but this is a, a before Trump thing. I think this has been happening for a while. But we the, we as a culture have been um, leaning, at least in the in the popular mind, we've been leaning a little bit away from process, a little bit away from like law. And leaning more into like <laughs> sort of that someone gives an order and we do it. Like there's been a lot of yeah. like I think the Bush years brought us that. There was even things in a little bit in the Obama years that brought us that. I think that a lot of people are like the the when you talk to people about this kind of thing, uh, whether it be government or whether it be the application of military force. I think that a lot of a lot of people I've talked to anyway. Th- there's this there's this. Uh, fatigue with bureaucracy. People are like, oh, yeah. bureaucrats. And you're like, yo, yo. <laughs> yeah. Like, bureaucracy, while it's very frustrating, I've worked with a number of um, bureaucratic institutions in my life. My dad yeah. uh, was in the Army and now is uh, in the Army Corps of Engineers. So my family is no uh, stranger to bureaucracy, but like the the multiple steps are what keep mistakes from happening. And yes, it's not as efficient sometimes. Like people just want to like, well, I want to do a thing, and then I want it to get done. And you're like, sure, and we can do that. But I think you need to take a minute, take a breath, and accept that we've set up processes to help mitigate 
bad decisions. It's not so much that we've set up these processes so that we can because because it's so because it's so convenient or it feels good yeah. to go through eight steps. It's it's there so that along the way, if there's a problem, someone can you know press the button on the assembly line, stop right. the assembly line, and say there's a problem yeah. here, and we can we can try to solve it. But culturally, right. I feel like we don't live in that in that place. Culturally, we we want to say that we want to do something, and then we want to start doing it almost immediately. And it's just good to know that we have people who are at least in this case, dedicated to the idea of like, well, if it's if it's not part of the agreement we've set up, if it's not part of the rules, then it's not going to happen. Right. At, le- at the very least, there there's a review process. And, and if you want to do something that's not already sort of pre-approved in this set of rules, then there, you know, you're going to have to go through a process to, to get that approval. And the purpose of that is to prevent abuse, right? The whole purpose of these bureaucratic systems is to prevent one. That's, and that's, by the way, what the Constitution is all about, to prevent one individual from being able to uh, abuse the people through concentration of power, right? Now, I want to jump on that and say that a related topic to that is the fact that uh, currently, there's a bunch of positions all over the government, but especially in the State Department, that haven't been filled yet. Yeah. And one gets the impression, one being me, one gets the impression that that is <laughs> in some ways done so that, uh, you know, steps can be skipped. Or like, I just feel like I, you, we have talked about this briefly, but I've heard a number of um, other either government officials or podcasters or just people in the know talking about that they the, people get the feeling that the reason the Trump administration is not filling positions in the State Department is because effect, uh, essentially Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump are kind of working to neuter the State Department. Yeah. Uh, not just neuter, deconstruct. Oh, you know uh, what? That's the de- first time des- I've heard that used, but that's exactly right. They're, right. Rex Tillerson is is working very earnestly to dismantle the, the State Department and sort of the global uh, diplomatic enterprise that we spent the last 70 years building. And, and there now, are, really quick, now I know a little bit about this, but w- why would that be? I mean, like, I, I've got I've got suspicions. I'm sure that you're going to confirm them. Yeah. But, but you know a little bit more about something like the State Department. And why would someone want to deconstruct or dismantle, like, our negotiating apparatus? Yeah, so so let's let's keep in mind what, what the State Department is for. And it's not just to... You know the the part the part of the State Department that we tend to that is visible that we tend to focus on is the Secretary of State jetting around the world, talking to world leaders, going to conflict zones, trying to hash out treaties, uh, trying to contain human rights abuses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we, of course, we have um, embassies in almost every country. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that in each one of those countries, those embassy staffs are quite large. Uh, hundreds to, in some cases, thousands of people. Uh, I was once at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is a small country, right? Not a huge economy. Uh, we, we, have, we, we have some interest there, but not what I would say vital strategic interest. And yet about a thousand people worked at the U.S. Embassy. And there's this huge compound. 
Uh, and that the purpose of that State Department was not just to negotiate treaties and to sit around and talk to the leaders of countries, but to uh, make sure that, you know, if there are U.S. companies that wanted to import stuff into Ethiopia, they could get the permits that they need, right? To, if there were people who wanted to travel to the United States, that they could get the visas that they need. Uh, if people wanted to move to Ethiopia to work for different companies, that they could get you know, vaccinations, right, that are required to go to that country or that they could, you know, uh, get enrolled in whatever tax system that 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 country has. Right. And so we have this vast uh, bureaucratic uh, presence in these countries to facilitate uh, our economic interests, mostly in in those countries. Uh, And, you know, when when we have tariffs for different goods coming into and out of the country, uh, when companies uh, foreign companies want to buy U.S. assets. All that stuff is sort of overseen and reviewed and approved by the State Department to make sure it's compliant with U.S. laws and that you know U.S. interests are being looked out for and that U.S. citizens can can act in the world. Uh, and so Rex, Tiller, Rex Tillerson he started out by just not nominating uh, the political appointees uh, that uh, an administration normally uh, nominates that require Senate approval to, f- to fill the, the top levels of the of the State Department. Uh, and then after that, and so there are still uh, dozens in the State Department of these top level positions that, that haven't been filled. Uh, and then he, he went about in a very systematic way, uh, eliminating entire departments, uh, you know, uh, encouraging people to retire or to resign. And then, of course, not filling empty positions. Uh, and so hundreds of people have been eliminated from the State Department, thousands worldwide from different embassies. Uh, and that results in a greater concentration of power in the Secretary of State and in the presidency of the United States. Does now, why do they? Sorry, yeah. sorry. Finish what you're going to say. I have a question to follow up with this, which is just. Well, you know, we can it. it we, we can only speculate as, as to why they want to do this. Uh, Rex Tillerson claims that, well, he's a business, he's a business guy, right? And businesses, you're trying to be efficient. But of course, the, <laughs> the purpose of the State Department is not to make money. The purpose of the State Department is to carry out U.S. national, you know, foreign policy. Uh, and so it's hard to, you know, you can cut the State Department the bud- budget. I don't know if you know, does that mean that it, the tape harbor is more efficient? Well, if we're not getting the stuff we want done in the world, then, you know, that's not efficiency. That's just decreased capacity. And then, uh, of course, Donald Trump very recently said that it doesn't matter uh, if there's no State Department because the only person that matters is him. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is it feels like I, a coup is too strong a word, but it feels like, yeah. I think you said it, a concentration of power. I feel like it, it feels like these things are being done so that decisions can be made without pushback or without, again, going through the proper channels. And you're exactly right. Like, the State Department's job is not to make us money. If I'm in – I took a trip to Rome over the summer, and uh, – and it was awesome. I, I rode a Vespa, yeah. and I ate a bunch huh. of cheese. Stellar. Uh-huh. I'll be back. Yeah. I'll be back very soon for more cheese and Vespa. And the thing though is that, like, I I knew because it, it, you know even even a, a place like Rome, a place like Western Europe, isn't a terribly threatening place to go. But you also just know that you're in another country where you don't speak the language, and. Yeah. 
customs are different, things are different. And I knew that if, I don't know, if the Vatican decided that they were going to lead an armed revolt and conquer Rome and all of Italy and I knew that I could go to the U.S. Embassy. I know that's a silly thing to yeah. say, but I also knew that if there was some sort of natural disaster, that's probably a better way of looking at it. If if there were an earthquake or or some awful bombing or fire while I was sure. in Rome, yeah. I know as an American citizen that instead of having to try to hide and figure out what to do in a country where I don't speak the language and don't know the customs and and hope that the people that I run across have my best interests in mind. I know yeah. that I can find my way to the American embassy in Rome. I can show them my passport and that at the very least they're going to have instructions for me. They'll probably, I assume that in the case of a natural disaster or something, I could probably just take refuge there. But at the very least they're going to have some sort of like, this is as an American, this is what you should do. And we're going to work on getting you back to your home. Oh, oh yeah. And, and you know, you have a sense, right? We all kind of have a sense if, if we grew up in America, that if, especially if we've traveled overseas, right? That no matter where we are, Rome, Ethiopia, you know, I once spent six months in Niger and we had this, this ability that the United States government has the capability, capacity, and intent to leverage vast resources to extract Americans from any dicey situation anywhere in the world, right? Which is extraordinary. Uh, you know, we, we, I was in Niger for six months. We, we, it was a tiny, you know, it's a small West African country, super poor. Uh, we still had a, a embassy staff of 800 people and about a couple hundred military folks in the country. And we had plans and, uh, you know, ready, we were ready to call in uh, cargo aircraft and, uh, take advantage of all kinds of resources if we needed to, to evacuate every American in that country uh, and get them to safety uh, in the event of civil unrest or terrorist attack or, or whatever, right? Niger, we, we could do that. Uh, and that, but that takes, that takes this vast bureaucratic enterprise to do. And I feel like by, by dismantling the State Department, by by doing all this, essentially what's, what's happening is, is we Americans, especially uh, any expatriates or anybody who's traveling, you're making Americans less safe in the world. Yeah, and absolutely. I feel no like, question. I, I feel like that's, that's kind of really frustrating. The, the way to solve this, or one way to start solving this, right, uh-huh. is there's no way that we can, we can directly affect the State Department in the short term. But the way to solve this, right, is to... Is to get our elected officials to make sure that that the government is running the way th- we think the government needs to be run. That's it, right? And, That's absolutely it. And part of the, that is is you and I have been have talked about a lot is is trying to swing districts. Yeah. Now, I don't yeah, know so, much about actually swinging districts. Like I I mean I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I live in a pretty blue I don't area. know either. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I call my reps pretty much every day and I put out daily yeah. calls on uh on, through my Facebook network, I, I have a group and I have friends and I we call every day about different things. But it's something that we're like, if we want to make this country a better and safer place, we actually have to get pretty good at the business of, I don't want to say politics, but it is politics. But it's the, like, I think swinging a district, the business of getting our, our, our neighbors and our other citizens involved and then activating our representatives through our neighbors and fellow citizens, right? Because if enough people yeah. are like, hey, you need to do this, you're going to make some progress. Obviously, there are, this is a, 
I don't want to sound paranoid because we already did that. We already did that section. But um, but there are special interests at work. You do have um, senators and congressmen, not so much who are like, I don't want to sound like I got a tinfoil hat on and say in the pocket of, you know, uh, whatever. But you do have, right. like, for example, right. here, uh, the senator that I will continue to talk about is my good friend Pat Toomey. In, yeah. uh, in Washington, D.C. I mean, he goes to a lot of Koch brothers retreats. Um, he gets a lot of money from the Koch brothers. And I wouldn't really? say that wow. he's in their pocket. I would just say that he actually shares their outlook. Yeah. And so they make good allies yeah. for him. Uh, sure. But the problem is like, so, but the thing is, is like mm-hmm. the way to, the way to deal with someone like my man, Pat is to get enough people who actually truly want certain changes and are absolutely willing to, let him know. Now we're going to pretend that Pat's up for re-election, but he's not. The the which is a shame. But the question that we need to get into is how we swing districts that are. I assume right now purple. Does that make sense? I, I feel yeah. like a hard a hard red district might be a might be a tough one. But you're in the Air Force, you know. You've done infiltration and things like that. Maybe uh-huh. we can do <laughs> some sort of uh, you know infiltration of ethics in the mind, but. You know, wh- it's a, well, yeah. What it's, do we do? What do we do? I mean, you know, logistics come into a big part. Like getting people out to vote is a big part. A lot of people don't actually do that. But where do sure. we start with this? These, these, these. Right. I mean, these are the obvious. Those are the obvious things. Uh, and it, it. I think it's. It comes down to a question of where do you apply your energy because we're we're all super busy, right? Uh, and it's it's harder and harder to be a middle class person in the world without not, without working all the time. And then of course people have families, and you also you know want to have a life. Uh, and so where do you you've only got, you know, may, you, even if you're really active, you may only have a couple hours a week to dedicate to, you know, trying to affect some political change. So where do you apply your effort? And I've been thinking a lot, a lot about this because uh, we are in the process of this here in Texas of trying to change Texas from a, a red state into at least a purple state, if, if not a blue state. And the weight and it really tough, as you said, in those deep red congressional districts, because gerrymandering has 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 made it all but impossible, right? Um, there's, you know, you have these ridiculously shaped districts that, uh, you know, d- that dilute any any uh, urban or suburban concentration of people who maybe tend to think that you got to, you know, we have to kind of have rules and work together if we're going <laughs> to live in a society, right? Uh, and uh, and and load those districts up with a large swaths of of rural area. Uh, where people are more inclined to uh, to have a different view, and you know, you you draw the district right, and those blue folks are, or those red folks are going to outnumber the blue folks. Even in like in the, here in Texas, for example, the the city of Austin, super liberal, right? Everybody knows Austin is a is a deep blue city, but uh, there is not a congr- a single congressional district that represents Austin. The population of Austin has been cracked into, I think, eight different congressional districts that include one of them is 200 miles long uh, on the northwest side of Austin so that they can take this chunk of of Austin population and and dilute that with an overwhelming majority of rural voters. Uh, and so the people of Austin never are going to have a, you know, a congressional representative to call their own. Right. Um, which is uh, it, it kind of boggles the mind. Well, it's kind the of a crime w- in some senses. I mean, it's, it's not, kind it's of not it, a literal it, crime, but it's right. It's, it should be criminal. 
I, it should I think be criminal. the Supreme Court is actually hearing uh, <laughs> arguments this they, year on this. They are, and who knows how that's going to turn out. Uh, it, it certainly is not what the founders had in mind, right? They would, you know, even Thomas Jefferson would say with all the people who live in a city should probably, you know, be able to vote their interests and have a representative for them. But the so, you know, pr- um, uh, barring any any Supreme Court action, the only way we're going to change this is uh, by redistricting. And in most states still, that redistricting process is controlled by the state legislatures, right? Every 10 years after a census. The next census is in 2020. And uh, so it is, it is uh, urgent, I would say, that in these next two years, we get those state houses filled with as many you know, uh, as many like-minded individuals as we can so that when they are given this redistricting responsibility, we can get these these districts redrawn. So if, if you have to focus your energy somewhere, I guarantee you there is a state legislature swing district near you. You need to find it. You need to figure out which candidates you support. And then you need to do everything you can to get that candidate into the state house. Yeah, and I want to say that, like, tactically speaking, I think that <clears throat> because what we talk about can sound, this can sound a little bit daunting. Like, I, if, if you'd have come to me during the Obama years and said, Terry, what I need you to do is, uh, you know, help swing this district or you need to do this or that, uh, it was, it sounds like a lot. So I'm going to break this yeah. down and talk about some things you can do. Uh, Google's your best friend. Because chances are, if you if you have a concern, there's already a group, most likely, that is applying pressure to your local state house or to your national congressional representative. Yeah, you don't have to start from scratch. And so the first thing to do, here in Pennsylvania, we have a group called Fair Districts Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And their big push is to make these... these um, redistricting responsibilities. They want these redistricting responsibilities to go into a, a citizen, like a, a, a citizen. Oh, I forget what it is. It's basically a panel of people that aren't politicians. Um, there's a word for it. Yeah. It's, it's escaping me right now, but basically these people would be, it would be, they would be assigned. Uh, it would be purposely bipartisan so that you don't have too many Republicans or too many Democrats then and, and just revisit the same problems we already have where the winning party gets to draw the lines. And it really is, uh, they want it to be sort of like citizen focused where you have a committee, this committee, uh, they do the redistricting. They're not politicians like picking their own districts and, or as they say, picking their voters is what they call it uh, now. But, and so that's one way to do it. I think, I think one, one aspect is finding a group that might be trying really hard to get, this responsibility put in the hands of citizens. A lot of states have these groups. But if they don't, one of the other things you can do, like you're talking about, Matt, is you can find out what swing district is up for election. That shouldn't take a ton of, like, Googling. Because no, you want it, it to be close to you. And then, you know, social media is, you know, social media gets kind of a bad rap, but it can have a decent impact. We're finding out that all these yeah. Russian ads were, uh, were like, sent to so many different people. And, and, and the thing is, like, essentially there's a narrative out there, and the narrative gets formed by all the things you see every day. So we can help 
kind of create narratives or help make these narratives by again similar to like wearing uh, my shirt into this South Philly gym, but you can also make sure you're just putting things out. You don't got to be crazy. You don't got to post like seven things a day or get into, you don't even have to get into Facebook fights with people. You just need to post (laughs) information that you think is relevant so that people can read it because at the very least they need, people need to see it. There's a lot of people who are on the fence who don't get into those Facebook fights, but who do read the information or on Twitter. And it's important that that information is out there. And And so simply posting once a day, can be enough. I'm a big believer in calling people and letting them know how I feel. And the reason I believe in that is because that has more of an impact on, yeah. that's more of a preventative thing. When I call and I call and I yell at these people or not even yell, sometimes I just talk to them in a disappointed tone. But when I do this, it's, it's to, it's to sort of like influence my representative. And the more local you call, the better. I've called the governor of Pennsylvania. I've called the mayor of Philadelphia and they don't get a lot of calls. And, and uh, so my voice has a little bit of an amplified thing. I write myself a little script. It's never more than three lines. I call yeah. up and I'm like, hey. And it's mainly because I would fall apart. Um, but I call up and I'm like, hey, this is really important to me. I really hope the mayor is thinking about this. And then I'll stop. And I just, I just zip my mouth shut. And I let them say what they're going to say. And uh-huh. even if they oppose me, I just say, I just like want you to pass this on to the mayor. Because they have to. So the important right. thing is, is like just some of the tactical things you can do, right, is find a group and find out what they want you to do. Because like they'll often have like things broken down into very easy steps that you can help the group with. And I think that's the, if you're timid, that's the best way to do it. Find a group that already believes in your thing. Uh-huh. Volunteer like twice a month or something like that. Or... Wait. When you make those when you make those phone calls, even with just a simple three line script, do you find that 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 results in maybe maybe uh, an emotional connection with the person you're talking to, connecting to them on some human level? Yes, that's happened more than once. Uh, sometimes it's yeah. a positive emotional connection. Sometimes it's a negative one. Um, there's a gentleman named Phil who I've gotten into many a fight with. <laughs> I remember Pat Phil. To his office. Um, but the, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the other day I was really tired and I, I made myself make the phone call. Like I didn't want to call. I was wiped out. Uh, I didn't want to fight with anybody. So I just called up and I said, hi, I oppose this Republican tax cut. I said, can you just tell the senator? And he's, by the way, he's not going to change his vote. But but they yeah. need to know that I feel this way. And I said, uh, yeah. because it prevents future legislation from getting worse and worse. And I said, I, you know, it's a giveaway for the rich. It's very frustrating. I said, the middle class benefits are outweighed by all the things that are going to happen down the road when you take away uh, people's access to health care and other things. So i just like them to start over. And I expected, like, kind of a condescending, like, thank you. But I uh-huh. clearly got under the skin of this woman by something I said. I mean, she said she'd pass huh. it on. But my point is, I was very surprised at the effect I had. And I'm not calling up to make this person's day awful. That's not why I'm calling. But when you, but I could tell that my actual call had an actual effect, at least on this person that day. And I've had other calls yeah. that were actually very positive. I've called to say thank you for things, or occasionally I've called uh, the mayor or the governor to say, I really need you to do this. I had one guy walk me through why Pennsylvania can't do single payer at this moment, but why they want to. Uh-huh. But he was like, yeah. I, I, I'm glad you called. He's like, I really, we're trying to get this done, but we can't right now. And I'll tell you why. But And then he said, here's some things you can help us move in the right direction. But again, like it was a great conversation and it made me understand sort of the political fishbowl that I'm swimming in right now as opposed to uh, just getting really mad in my house 
and taking that out into my job or wherever I'm going. And people are like, Terry's real difficult to deal with. Um, And so, yeah, I've had a number of human connections and sometimes they're really short. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes they're negative. But you're right. You do actually connect sometimes. See, I I think this is key. You know, uh, you're not going to change anybody's mind with the Facebook post. Right. Uh, And not because the information you're posting is not, uh, you know, uh, impactful enough, but it's because, you know, this is the difficulty of human communication. Most human communication is nonverbal. And so there's just not enough human, in, you know, and, and people tend to believe who they know versus what they, you know, versus anything on an intellectual level. They, the, the messenger, the messenger is more important than the message. This is, this is why we have the problems that we have, right? People are in their bubbles because of who they know, not because of any of the information itself. And so you're not going to, you're not going to change anybody's mind with the Facebook post. Now that the, the Facebook is, is going to be really useful for organizing and for finding the meetings and getting to the groups and maybe finding the words that you need to make those calls. You'll have a bigger impact with phone calls because now, you know, there's more in human connection there. You can transmit, you know, that, that, uh, that sense of who you are and what you want to the person you're talking to. Uh, the, of course, the thing that's the most impactful is going to be face-to-face action. And so you, that, that's sort of the, the, the step, you know, the, the ladder that I would climb. Uh, you know, I'd start with, fa- with uh, social media to get organized. I'd use the phone to communicate. And then uh, I, I would tr- use all of that to facilitate these face-to-face engagements where I can really make an, a, a connection with somebody. And then, you know, ch- if not change their mind, at least let them know the legitimacy of who you are and where you're coming from. Exactly. And, you know, I want to add one thing to that is that because uh, you're exactly right, you know, uh, to bring it back to what we talked about at the top of the show, that is part of the reason <clears throat> that I wear um, the shirts that I wear. And I try not to <clears throat> I try not to make them inflammatory. Right. I don't um, I used to have yeah. one with Donald Trump. Uh, French kissing Vladimir Putin. I've stopped wearing that shirt <laughs> into the gym. That's a little. And it's that's a little provocative. Yeah, it's it's mainly because it's only it, it only makes people on the other side angry, and people who yeah. uh, feel the same way as me give me high fives. And while the high fives were really fun, a bigger part is I go into the gym, I do my thing. I, you know, there was a different guy who could not stop staring at one uh-huh. of my shirts, and I just I just gave him a little salute, a little wave. And he sort of noticed that I noticed that he was watching me and he kind of waved back and, and I just continued to, my job is just to go in, in these situations or if you're talking to relatives, I mean, Thanksgiving is coming up and that's going to be exciting this year. Um, uh-huh. but my point is like <laughs> yeah. your job is to sort of present the views that are important to you and be a person. And because yeah. when people see you as a regular person, but presenting these views, they say, well, I mean, he's a good guy, so maybe there's right. something to that. That's the reason right. my Uncle Don gets so much traction. People go, oh, yeah. ignore him, oh, ignore him. Well, you ignore him enough. I mean, Uncle Don, in his better moments, is an okay guy, but now yeah. you've got this toxic ideology, uh, and you're like, well, I mean, if Don thinks that maybe it's not all crazy, but the problem is with my particular Uncle Don, it is crazy, and that's fine. You just have to, we have to push back, and part of pushing back is actually not getting in fights. It's just, well, I mean, it might turn into a fight, but you present your view and you just present it and then you stay a chill individual, a nice person because you become the messenger. Well, if Terry yeah. thinks so, it must not be. Maybe there's something to this. 
Yeah. And, and it's it's a long That's fight. It. This is the long game. But we can do little things. Now, Matt, I hate to I hate to do this, but I have to wrap up because actually, speaking of Thanksgiving, um, I have a bunch Aha. of prep I have to do today. And oh boy, so I have to run out of here. But is there anything sure. you want to finish on here before we go? You know, I'm gonna uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go forth and um, uh, follow, take take your advice, Terry, and uh, uh, I'm ha- I'm gonna be uh, having a number of uh, uh, social interactions over Thanksgiving and. You know, try to try to make a connection uh, with somebody, and if if they're looking to follow me out into the parking lot and pick a fight, uh, if I can't de-escalate, I'm going to run away. Just jetpack shoes. Just use your jetpack shoes. Jetpack shoes, of course. Make sure that you squeeze your feet together, though, because otherwise, like one of them shoots off. It's it's complicated, but <sighs> boy, jetpack yeah. shoes. Well, listen, if you like what we're doing here, please go on to uh, uh, go on to Apple. Uh, was that what's that thing called? iTunes. It's called iTunes. iTunes. And yeah. rate us on yeah. there because that helps us show up on other people's feeds. It helps people find the podcast who might be interested in this kind of work. Also, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we are sure. just over there podcast. So if you type that in, you're definitely going to find us. We do love to tweet at people. We do love getting Facebook messages. So please, by sure all do. means, go out and uh, and find our stuff. Well, Matt, thank you so much for for hanging out with me this week. Yeah. Yeah, you too. And uh, I'll, I'll see you over there, Terry. Yeah, I'm going to take my jetpack shoes and I will meet you over there. <laughs> All right. So long. Send see you later. The word, send the word to beware. We'll be over. We're coming over. And we won't come back till it's over, over.